0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I've been really looking forward to this episode because, well, I've been looking forward to this episode since we started doing the podcast. (laughs) It was one of the topics that I wrote down five years ago when we first started brainstorming for this thing. But it's always felt like a really hard episode to do, which is part of why I've avoided it to this point. Because it's just... Such a big thing to wrap your head around. And also, there's a lot of argument over whether or not the thing that we're going to be talking about today is even a thing at all and the implications that it has, if it is a thing, for how we live our lives. So, today we're going to be talking about the unconscious mind. Yeah, great job there, Dad. Thanks for chiming in. I should do like
1: the soundtrack for Jaws. Do, 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 do. <laughs> What's going to drag you
0: under? <laughs> Sorry. So I'm glad that I'm joined today by a clinical psychologist, best-selling author, and also my dad, Dr. Rick Hansen. So dad, how are you doing today?
1: Psychologist and mediocre comedian and voice actor, but that's (laughs) all right. (laughs) It's funny, there's a kind of strange gaiety coming through about a topic that involves both a lot of rigidity and a lot of unruliness inside us. yeah. So with those maybe as kind of thematic notes, I'm looking forward a lot to getting into this.
0: Yeah, I think we're a little punch drunk to start this one because we were already talking for about 10 or 15 minutes about what the heck are we going to talk about today with this particular topic before we press the record button. And what I really want people to get out of this episode is that There is a huge and sprawling body of knowledge related to the ideas related to the unconscious mind. There is so much stuff out there. There There's so many different takes on what this thing is. Does it exist? What does it mean for us? All of that stuff. And I I had to wade through uh, not an insubstantial amount of reading just to prep for this episode. And I really want to try to get you the good stuff without you having to go through that process yourself. So that's what I hope we take away from this. And I would love to start, Dad, by just asking you, what's the unconscious mind?
1: Well, let's start with what is the mind?
0: Oh, man. Okay, great. The
1: function of the nervous system is to process information. It stores information, receives information, transmits information, and creates architectures of instructions, software essentially, that do good things with information. That's why it evolved. So the way I define mind, mind is the entirety of the information represented by a particular nervous system. So think information, information processing. By unconscious, people typically mean two kinds of information. One, information that is permanently inaccessible to conscious self-reflective awareness. And second, information that is currently inaccessible, but in principle could be accessible, either at will or with some help, maybe with a therapist or some inner practice of one kind or another. Mm -hmm.
0: That's basically it. Great. Yeah, and it's that second category that we're mostly interested in today. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And and it's really kind of haunting mm-hmm. to realize I was thinking of this as Avatar. All right, I'm looking forward to the next Avatar film. I haven't <laughs> seen it yet. <laughs> okay, and so it's a CG'd world, computer graphics. Mm-hmm. It's entirely constructed. So we realized when we are watching that movie that someone basically with tremendous processing Hour, maybe a billion dollars worth, crafted this extraordinary film. Well, guess what? This moment of hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, thinking, wanting, when you look around the room you're in or hear our voices right now, all of that is virtual, virtual in our phenomenology. We never directly access reality itself. We we access our perceptions of it. Now, those perceptions need to be pretty accurate approximations of reality to enable lizards, mice, monkeys, and men, and humans, in other words, to survive in harsh conditions. But Hmm. it's virtual. It's constructed. And much as when we watch Avatar, we start to realize if we were in that immersive world, like with 3D glasses on or something, we'd be experiencing various things. But the Information processing that's putting those images on the screen and the background, the kind of the machine, the machinery deep down is just forever inaccessible to us. So it's really haunting, if you'll forgive my extended metaphor here, to realize that almost all of who we are is outside deliberate control and even outside of awareness, which is both humbling and haunting because it obviously would move us into an investigation of what's below the waterline.
0: Yeah, and so picking up on that and focusing on the kinds of information that might be pushed out of our immediate access but could theoretically be accessible to somebody, Freud had this uh, conception of the mind as being made up of three parts, essentially your conscious mind, your pre-conscious mind, and then your unconscious mind. And people often use the metaphor of an iceberg to talk about these three parts of the mind. So you have the conscious, which is the part that's above the water, then the pre-conscious, it's below the water, but it's still in sight to us. And this could be something like what you ate for breakfast several weeks ago. It's not floating around in your mind right this second, but you could pull that up with a little bit of effort. And then we have the unconscious, and that's the stuff that's out of sight. And for me, one of the really interesting questions here is for starters, what's in that unconscious mind? And then second, why does stuff get put there? So I'm going to start by asking you the first part of that question, Dad. Could you give some examples of the sorts of material, the kinds of things that might be in somebody's unconscious? If
1: we mean the kinds of things that are permanently inaccessible, think of them as like programs in a computer that, for example, regulate your heartbeat. Things like that. That's bubbling away. And then the other kind of stuff is what we push down because it's just too painful to feel, maybe certain kinds of memories from childhood, maybe certain kinds of pain. We just don't want to think about it. We don't want to open up to it. So we push it down. And then there's another category, which is not so much what we've deliberately repressed, but forces, in the complexity, given the complexity of the nervous system, several hundred trillion little microprocessors organized in clusters inside us right now, sparkling away. Then we're into the possibility of things like imagery or nonverbal material that starts to be compelling or speaks to us in meaningful ways. And to use your iceberg metaphor a little bit, it's a part of us that somehow it feels different from the observing ego and is kind of bobbing up and down in the water, a little bit above and a lot below. And then what's our relationship with these various characters, bobbing up and down in the waterline, our parts in terms of the long history of the notion of the psyche made up of parts, recently really developed by Richard Schwartz and internal family systems. You were a guinea pig, willingly, of him talking with you in time for us on yeah. the podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll get into that too. But things like the shadow or the anima animus, you know, the relating to your perhaps gender or certain archetypal forces inside you that we often find also repeatedly represented in myths and folklore around the world in really different places. So this is sort of the territory. Okay, what do you think about all that?
0: I think that we're already talking about Jung which we were inevitably going to talk about during this conversation. So the the two people who did the most famous, most well known work to flesh this out were Freud and Jung. Yeah. And the context for this is that a lot of this was being done in the early 1900s, and so there were all of these various schools that were running around Europe. And this was, you know, in terms of the history of Western psychology, we're mostly talking about Europe. We're mostly talking about white men. Your mileage may vary on all of these things, and. Jung was essentially arguing that there is this great reservoir of material in people that influences their behavior. Freud was also arguing this. And then Jung basically took this idea and expanded it to the idea that, hey, maybe there is some not particularly well understood, sort of almost pseudo mystical way in which we all share some underlying firmament that connects us with these different images and archetypes that's just fundamental to being human. And it's passed down from person to person, much as we pass down our genes. And this was his idea of the collective unconscious, which is, uh, is not a very scientific idea at this point in time. It's just kind of a thought. But it was something that he was really into. And from that came his work on archetypes, which we might talk about a little bit more today, Dad. But what I'm really interested in more than anything else is this idea of like repressed material Mm -hmm. and the stuff that we're pushing down into our unconscious because it's just too uncomfortable for us to interact with. And would you mind describing how that can work for somebody?
1: Yeah. So first off, when we think about Repression, it implies a kind of agency, hmm. even a deliberate sort of thing. And in a way, I would talk about it a little bit more in terms of implicit memory formation of in pain, emotionally painful experiences. So let's suppose that you're a child, and let's suppose that for various reasons you're bullied fairly often through grade school and high school. The repeated experiences have emotional residues of sadness, frustrated anger, humiliation, shame, worthlessness, with associated somatic aspects, body sensations of different kinds. And those experiences sift down into implicit memory. In effect, they're learned. So we acquire that particular package, let's say, related to, let's say, being criticized in a group setting in any way, shape, or form. So all that happened, that material's there, Most of the time, let's say now as an adult, 30 years later, working in a business environment, most of the time, that adult, it would not be aware of it, it wouldn't be relevant. It might drag their mood down in general, but let's say it's mainly, um, if not entirely outside of awareness, and then something happens. They're called on in a group setting, and there's a criticism. And suddenly, it's as if, they're back in seventh grade. That whole material is called up again. It's triggered, it's reactivated. That's one way in which a lot of so-called unconscious material lives. And it's not so much that the child deliberately pushed it away, although there are examples that are quite remarkable under extreme trauma, people will thoroughly dissociate and they have little or no sense of what actually happened And yet some very often years later, corroborated often by third parties, like, yeah, it happened like that, you will suddenly come back to them or it'll start Mm -hmm. trickling back uh, to them bit by bit. Then there are certain situations where people deliberately repress the memory. They just deliberately, at some level inside, they go, this is too horrible. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to dwell on it.
0: Yeah, I think that the word deliberately here, and just what you were saying earlier about, uh, I don't know if I love the idea of repressing because there's this tone to it of it being Mm -hmm. a deliberate action. One of the real interesting questions about the unconscious mind in general is how does stuff get there? Particularly this category of things you're talking about, Dad, where somebody goes through a painful experience of some kind or... Often when Freud was talking about this stuff, he talked about our inappropriate urges of various kinds. These are the urges that were commonly linked to the id. The idea was that we are big, big apes and we're running around and we want to do the things that big apes want to do. Yeah. For Freud, that was the life and death impulses. Basically, we want to kill things. We want to procreate. We want to eat delicious food. We just, we want to be big animals. But in order to live in a functional society, we need to be able to curtail some of those impulses. So what do we do inside of our mind in order to deal with all of those desires? Well, we repress them. We push them down somewhere. And then they bubble out of us in all of these subtle ways. And I don't know that it is a conscious and volitional act. In fact, I think it's probably not. Like What people choose to repress it not really a thing. They're not choosing it. It's just happening. But it does seem like there's a deliberate function that's occurring in the system that is causing certain material to get pushed down and certain material not to get pushed down. So we can't talk about volitional control, but I think it is kind of helpful to think about it in terms of your mind making choices, even if it's making choices without consulting you about the choices that it's making. Does that make sense?
1: Oh, totally. And so now we're in we're kind of in my sweet spot. I, I went to Great. grad school, a psychoanalytically oriented school, it's layered on top of family therapy and developmental psychology with kind of a through line of human potential and spiritual practice, with some cognitive behavioral practicalities around the edges.
0: Every time I try to pin you down about what kind of a therapist you actually are, dad, this is what I hear. It's just, it's the full kitchen sink just in the pot boiling away on the stovetop.
1: Why not play with all the toys, <laughs> all the tools? <laughs> but yeah, Love I think it. most, I think honestly, most many, many therapists think developmentally and that was a Freudian model in many ways, that history matters, okay? They think developmentally in a framework of relationality while acting cognitively, behaviorally. That's a pretty common package. And again, there's some variation on that. So let's talk about two kind of ideas here. One is what do we disown? Mm. What parts of ourselves do we not want to think we are and we don't want other people to see that we are? So we kind of keep them under covers or we push them in to a room inside the mansion of the mine and try to lock the door. We disown it or we disavow it or we disidentify from it. It's like, whoa, not me. And what do we tend to push away? A lot is what society doesn't approve of or when we were young, other kids made fun of or we shut down, numbing. We, you know, boys don't cry or what have you. Girls don't get angry like that. We push it away. We push it away. So that's really one aspect of this for sure. And as you well know, in in the Freudian model, which was situated in the, in the Victorian age, it was this notion of a collision, which also is centered in a context of colonialism and Northern Hemisphere delusions of superiority in which there was this collision between so-called civilized...
0: Mm-hmm
1: ways of being, and savagery, represented by Freud as superego, civilization, savagery, id, with this precarious ego, so-called, trying to navigate and compromise between the two of those. So Mm -hmm. it was a lot about repression of sexuality, disowning of that, disowning of desires to have an erotic relationship with a parent, the Oedipal complex. Sex and violence, yeah. Yeah. Those were the two big ones. Something. It's too terrible to, to feel or to include or to accept as a part of yourself in an integrated kind of way. So it's mm. pushed out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And a lot of what the therapy is about is reclaiming. It's about reclaiming the return of the repressed you know, and trying to manage the return of the repressed, uh, which often might happen in bad ways, but to manage it in a more integrated, healthy way. The outcome of which the pinnacle of, achievement is to become a normal neurotic. (laughs) I love psychodynamic thinking. There's A
0: normally messed up person, yeah. There's tremendous
1: richness there. And I think it's gotten a bad knock. And some of the, you know, yeah, throw out the bathwater. Okay. But what about the baby that's left?
0: To recap what we've talked about so far, the mind is a complex structure. It has aspects of it that are immediately available to us and aspects of it that are not. Some of those unconscious aspects are things like automatic functioning, the processes that regulate your heart beating, your breath going in and out of your body when you're not paying attention to it. Breath is actually maybe a good example of the preconscious. Mm. You're not conscious of it most of the time, but if you try, you can feel that process occurring naturally. Same thing if you take your pulse. All of a sudden, you might have more of an awareness of your heart beating. And then there's a second kind of unconscious material. And this is material that some process in the mind, has pushed down or repressed because it's just too something for them to deal with. It's too painful. It's too dysregulating. It would be inappropriate. And they don't know how to manage this urge through a way other than shoving it into the basement somewhere. And that's the category that we're really going to be focusing on, I think, for the rest of the conversation. Does that does that sound like a pretty good recap to you so far, Dad? It's
1: great. And and maybe two forms of that I could slip in. Yeah, please. Mm-hmm. One is bias. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the quite extraordinary notes you created for this episode, as you do routinely. So that's a pitch to become a patron. Patreon folks get access to four <laughs> show notes, which are really a work of art. They're like a Wikipedia oh, thank you, Dad. of practical modern psychology, frankly. You talked about bias, mm-hmm. bias, expectations, assumptions attributions, you know, the ways that we are tilted towards certain frames meaning the frame of meaning we put things in. That's one. Second, the script-like nature of many important relationships. People can really get a lot of value out of exploring bias, racial bias, all kinds of bias and and also just scripts, presumptions like really? Do you have to do that? Anyway, so I don't know if you want to get into those as well
0: great notes of just other things that can be housed down there. And then what I really wanted to ask you about at this point, Dad, is so there's this invisible content that is present in us to some extent that does influence our behavior in different kinds of ways, and yet it's below the waterline. We can't access it, and if we can't access it, we really can't do a whole lot about it. And so you mentioned earlier the return of the repressed, and I know also just various courses of what's called depth psychology are really aimed at accessing this kind of material, pulling it into the consciousness in a more safe way. And so I just want to ask you, what can we do about this unconscious material?
1: Depends on what it is. If we start to realize that we have these beliefs that are taken for granted and they're kind of operating in the background, like big boys don't cry, or it's all my fault, things mm-hmm. like that. In cognitive therapy, for example, what will often happen is a client, let's say, is just talking about their problems or, or their suffering. And the therapist may pick up on a certain phrase that's stated as an assertion, like a it's true that X, or will kind of summarize a certain amount of stuff that's being said of, oh, like you think you're ugly right? It's a belief. I am ugly. I've worked with people, interestingly, all of the men who had serious body dysmorphic disorder that borderline on delusional, but it was really, that was their belief. So then there would be a direct challenge. So you could imagine that, right? That's that's one way to get at things. Psychotherapy is a big territory. There are other ways to get at what's underneath the waterline. One of them is to, of course, Freud's breakout book was on the interpretation of dreams. And I did a dream therapy. I don't know if you've worked much with your dreams for us. Uh, a lot of people have, There is quite remarkable. And as my therapist said to me, he was a Jungian analyst. Some of the coolest people I think are Jungian analysts because they tend to be kind of wild. And he's the kind of person <laughs> literally who would take people to Greece. And they would go into the caves where the Delphic Oracles were and they would probably take psychedelics there. I don't know, it was a thing. And just like a
0: lot of those oracles did, apparently. Uh, the 70s were a wild time, man. He <laughs> was <a> wild <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> but hey, he was doing stuff that maybe the oracles were doing in Greece, like yeah, it's time. Yeah, of sure, homework. sure. Lean in. <laughs> anyway, very cool people. Okay. And he, he had a line, I'll shut up. He said when the unconscious starts to detect that someone's listening. When the unconsciousness starts to realize that someone's listening, it starts communicating more, including through dreams. Yeah, have you done much dream stuff?
0: I have done very, very little dream work Yeah, to just fully disclose. There is some research that suggests that some of this might be helpful, uh, but... One of the things that can be difficult for people these days is that a lot of the traditional practices that were used as a way into accessing the unconscious ha- have been essentially a little bit discredited over time. Whether that be things like dream work or Rorschach tests, like inkblot-based tests was a way that people tried to access unconscious material, or free association, which was a, is a psychoanalytic technique that you'd probably know more about than I would, Dad. But just a way to try to get to people to drop their filter, essentially. If you think about it, when you were dreaming, we're not processing things cognitively. We're not applying top-down control. Same thing with the Rorschach test, same thing with free association. And these are all practices that are not super consistent with a lot of modern psychology or like attempts to scientize the field over time. They're difficult to study. There are some prominent examples of things where like a Rorschach test was used in a, in a legal case or something and had a weird result for somebody. And it turns out that it, we really shouldn't have taken it that seriously. So there, there are ways in which these more ascientific approaches can, can have some complexities that are associated with them. So that being said, for one individual, yeah, it can be a totally useful way to do analysis.
1: Yeah, and this also gets to kind of a meta topic for our podcast which is like in clinical psychology in America, there's really a kind of a collision. There's been a real tension between those who want to procedurize it and manualize it, and replicate, replicatabilize it, in the frame of the scientific method, which is about being able to replicate your research in falsifiable frameworks by third parties. And it's really important to appreciate that just because we can't measure something does not mean it's not personally meaningful in some way. Yeah. How do you sure. measure a response to poetry or a person's response to a compelling dream image that really summarizes a lot of what they're grappling with these days and gives them that feeling of, oh yeah, that's how it is to be me. So all that said, and and more broadly, think about the inquiry into the depths of the psyche in so many cultures around the world, including First Nations cultures. Anyway, so I appreciate your disclaimer, and we don't disagree at all about it.
0: Yeah, and to to reinforce part of what you're saying here, Dad, and I'm gonna totally out myself here and probably not ruin my credibility, I love doing things like throwing the tarot. Do I think that the tarot is a force of divine divination that is giving me the exact answer to my question? No. No, I don't think that. But what I do think is when I randomly pull some cards that are tied to some cool archetypes of different kinds, that it forces me to look at a situation that I'm in a little bit differently. It forces me to try to find a new way of interpreting something that, hey, maybe stirs something up in the the depths of my being that helps me out in some meaningful way. Maybe it shifts how I look at a situation a little bit when I'm really stuck in a rut with my thinking. And also, frankly, it's just fun. It's just a fun thing to do. So, you know, I I just think that like a lot of these things, we can get a little bit too precious to your point about how exactly has it been procedurized in these various ways when the question over and over again is really just, do you find it useful? So if you find it useful and it's not hurting anyone else, then hey, maybe it's a good intervention.
1: Yeah. And it's funny, like myself, you know me as someone who's fairly meticulous and Getting stuff done. I care about that. I care about the details. I love the messy unconscious. Maybe because I'm kind of an orderly person, I really <laughs> like the mess. <laughs> yeah. So I admit it. I admit it. I wonder if an example would be useful here. A couple examples.
0: Yeah, yeah. So if uh, just to do a little bit of traffic copping as we as we make our way through this one, I think that it might be really helpful here to give, like you're saying, Dad, a specific example of material that a person might have repressed, Mm -hmm. and then the process that that person might go through, whether it's in a psychoanalytic framework or a course of depth psychology, or just more generally how you would work with somebody to safely unearth some of that material and help them take a look at it in a practical way.
1: First off, to kind of clear the decks, just like you said, Mm -hmm. very briefly, I think about a lot of what we do in personal growth it's a little bit like being in a river and suddenly alongside you, you see a tiny leaf above the waterline mm. and you, you reach down, you're sitting by the river and you, and the river is your streaming of consciousness. So the witness is sitting on the rock by the river, sees a lot of stuff streaming through and then notices a leaf just sticking up above the water. So you reach over and you kind of hold it and you start pulling on it. And if you pull it too hard, you'll snap the leaf off. Mm. You won't bring it into awareness. But if you gently welcome the leaf and you start pulling, you get a hold of a twig. You start pulling more on the twig, you start feeling into a branch. You start pulling a branch and then a whole log comes into view as an important aspect of yourself.
0: So Mm -hmm. there's a a
1: quality of this. Uh, There's a beautiful book title Psychotherapy colon, the art of wooing nature.
0: Hmm.
1: You're wooing, you know. Okay, so having said all that. Oh, and and also I should add, what about the inner child? That notion of the inner child, the younger parts of us, and tuning into those younger, more vulnerable, softer places Mm -hmm. inside. All of that is in the space of this explorations of what's been out of sight. So if I could think of a concrete example, I'll tell you a personal story. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've ever really shared this with you very much at all. So I lived in Finland for a year, my junior year in high school. My family went there and I was a junior in high school and I met a, a young woman at a blind date and we really hit it off and I truly fell in love. Just an extraordinary, wonderful person. First true love of my life, real love. Unfortunately, I had to leave in about two months. And so those two months were very intense. Then we left. My family had to go, and I went back to America after the summer. And I desperately missed her and longed for her, and but I pushed it away cuz I was dorky and shy and awkward. I didn't want to admit to my parents that I loved her and had told her so and that I was really really upset about all this. Just pushed it away. Acted like it wasn't real. And I pushed it out of my awareness mainly. Then I had a dream. And I think I might've even had this dream early in college. So a couple of years after I'd left, but I still wrote her intensely. It was still a lot of, I'm I'm gonna try to come back. We're gonna connect somehow, right? But it was all secret, did not reveal that at all. Then I had a dream. In the dream, it was as if I was in some kind of canyon lands with tall red rock spires and dry, arid, and dusk, darkness. And I was on top of one of these tall desert spires in this sort of barren area. And off in the distance, suddenly, I could see on top of another spire but separated from me, within sight, but utterly separated, this girl. I call her a girl, young woman. And I woke up from the dream, and it just felt so true to me. It felt that it was both the way it was and there was an inevitability to it, a kind of, this is the way it is, you're not gonna get back together again. And I had to really face that and accept that and integrate that material through the guidance of the unconscious that was talking to me through imagery about the facts here. And that dream then helped me To get more realistic, really, and to start making a transition and opening to other people.
0: Well, that's a lovely story, Dad. And I'm sure there are people listening who resonate with that in terms of these early romantic experiences that we can have with another person and the ways in which they can really have a very long tail throughout our lives, both in terms of the feelings themselves, but then maybe even more. In the scripts that we start to write about the way that love works, or what it means to be in a relationship with another person, and and so it's always really fortunate to have like a positive early experience in that way, I think, or at least one mm-hmm. that's not too dysregulating for a person. Yeah, something that's implicit in your story, I think, is that often when these when this repression occurs of one kind or another, like you were talking about having these urges and these desires, but you push them down inside of yourself because you didn't you didn't want to deal with them. These are painful sensations. These are painful thoughts and feelings. And so when that first unearthing process happens for a person, it's often quite uncomfortable for them. Mm-hmm. You talk about emptying the bucket of tears a spoonful at a time. That's a line I've heard you use often. Yeah. And It can be really helpful to do this work if you're going to do depth psychology kind of work with a clinician, because the whole point of that practice is to create a safe environment for you to be able to deal with uncomfortable thoughts and feelings that can come up during that process. And at the same time, accessing that material, which I've done in some ways in my own life, is just enormously valuable, or at least has been enormously valuable for me personally. So you've given that example, and you have also already mentioned dream work here as one way that people can access that more unconscious material. Do you have any other ideas or any other recommendations for what somebody could do, maybe if they can't work with a clinician for whatever reason, to get into that beneath the waterline territory?
1: Yeah. Well, here too, to name it and then kind of move on from it, emotional release work. I mean, that's a whole category. If we want to start talking about that, I mean, as an example, I did workshops in the 70s and led them that would involve people forming, like taking a towel, wrapping it up into a roll with masking tape around it, and then using that towel for minutes at a time to pound on a table, screaming at the top of your lungs and getting all kinds of Anger out or other kinds of feelings, often ending up crying, just because what was underneath the anger, very understandable anger, often was tears, clearing that away. So there, there are categories there again. Be careful, you know, to use a Jungian metaphor. He was, he loved alchemy, these sort of pre-modern ways of describing the psyche. And for example, his point being the hotter the fire and the more combustible the mixture, the stronger the crucible. To your point as well, working with other people. So there's emotional release work. There's a lot around art therapy or creative expression kinds of therapy where people Mm -hmm. will do things like with their non-dominant hand. I'm right-handed, so it'll be left-handed. Just start making shapes. And the non-dominant hand typically is associated with the um, non-verbal hemisphere of the cerebral cortex. In my case, it would be my right hemisphere, where a lot of material lives. A lot of wisdom lives in the right hemisphere, but it's it's without speech. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know. uh, So anyway, non-dominant hand, doing stuff like that. Emotional expression work. I've done things and, you know, I've told people about doing things where you get a crayon, you hold it in your non-dominant hand and you just Get it off your chest, you know, in ways that aren't going to hurt anybody. Like you start writing with your crayon, giant letters
0: on a page. F, you. (laughs) You keep going, (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah. Well, can I I pitch you on some ideas, some like practices that I think could plausibly help somebody out here? These are by and large, not original ideas for starters. But I was really thinking about this, Dad. And to me, I wonder if, the most effective modern technique that we have for accessing the unconscious is just mindfulness practice. Because essentially mindfulness practice is interoception. If you think about it, you are tuning in- That's great, Forrest. To what's going on in the body. And at least in my experience, when your thinking brain gets quiet, something tries to fill it.
1: Really beautifully said. I think there's a place for taking a kind of technical procedural stance of pure choiceless awareness that said, Mm I've gotten a lot of good therapy mileage sitting on my couch meditating. Yeah. Five, 10 minutes at a time, occasionally. You know, there you are, you're receptive, you're calm, maybe you're opening your heart, you're doing stuff. So you are you got a good crucible to use that. And then something comes up that like you just feel really guilty about. Mm -hmm. You've kept it away, but it's all right. Now there's room for it to bubble forward. There's also often a premise that when material starts to surface into awareness, it's often because you're now ready to deal with it.
0: And that gets to, I think, the second thing, which is strengths development, right? So if mm. the premise is that we repress material because it is painful in some way, yeah, well, what do we do with painful stuff? We can do what we can to increase our distress tolerance. And that phrase, distress tolerance, is a little bit complex. can have some associations for people that are, are difficult or problematic or it can sound a little judgy. But the basic idea I think is good and is useful, which is that as we increase our ability to bear different kinds of uncomfortable experiences, we can do a better job of unearthing this material and have it land on us in a way that isn't overwhelming. And I don't think that there's like a little traffic conductor inside of the brain that's going around being like, you are now ready to process this material. I, I don't think that that's happening. But mm-hmm. I do think that there is a kind of mysterious process here where it does feel like when people resource themselves more, maybe just because they become more confident. Yeah. So they become more confident in themselves and, and right. then they get braver essentially about delving into the underbelly of whatever's going on down there.
1: I think that's that's true. And I can tell a story about myself taking yeah. a Rorschach, if you like that. Oh, let's, let's do some Rorschach testing, great. Yeah, so I want to stress that the literal interpretations from something like a Rorschach, you have to be careful about that. And it's really important to be careful yourself about your unconscious bias, your privilege, what it's like for someone to go through an assessment, all the above. Okay, that said, a Rorschach is very much about not what you see, but how you see it. So to your point about strengths building, tell a story here. As I was preparing for my licensing exam, which included back in 1991, I believe, 92, 91, the requirement to be able to talk about key tests like a Rorschach test. Okay. So I thought, oh, I'll take a Rorschach. So I, I had a colleague who had known me quite well, who was experienced in giving and interpreting a Rorschach, gave me the Rorschach. So you see these, I believe, 10 inkblot pictures and kind of classic plots, And so I did the Rorschach and she took the results away, scored it up according to kind of a standard system, brought it back. And she had known me as someone who had been a research assistant for another colleague. And she looked at me kind of funny. She said, Rick, are you okay? Like, well, (laughs) I'm in grad school trying to get my, you know, license. And I got two young kids and I'm, you know, I got to make most of the money and, you know, a lot of pressure and, but yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I'm fine. She said, well, you had a lot of psychotic indicators. (laughs) And I was like, what? And she said, well, you know, you just saw so many things and it didn't take much for you to just see something in the image. And Mm. I thought, Mm -hmm. oh, well, two things here. First one, I'm a, you know, (laughs) A high achieving guy, I want to always get an A. She you, you asked me how much can I see? I can see a lot. <laughs> that was first off. And then second, I'm extremely comfortable. And by then, you know, I'd had I'd done a lot of psychedelics, I'd done a ton of inner work. I was pushing 40. And I was like, Oh, I don't. it's all good to me. <laughs> you know, I'm fine with whatever bubbles up. And it was because I had developed those strengths, as you said. I could tolerate ah, okay. I was yeah. comfortable. Mm-hmm with my mm-hmm. unconscious. And then she mm-hmm. said, oh, okay, that makes sense because actually one of the findings around Rorschach is that highly creative people or people who are really artistic will often have a profile a lot like yours, who are not psychotic, mm-hmm. they're not mm-hmm. schizophrenic, mm-hmm. they're perfectly functioning. But on the other hand, you're right. Think about the usage of the Rorschach to just lock somebody up in an insane asylum for sure. years, maybe yeah. you know, classically, often in a sexist way classist way, you know, to just put people away. So you gotta be careful about it. But that's an example of-
0: Yeah, yeah, of being able to, to tolerate the, the material strengths. that comes up. Totally, yeah. totally. And I think that's something that's running through the conversation as we're naming these different ways to access the unconscious mind or work with this material is how it can be cognitive in its presentation. Like mm-hmm. we think about these thoughts. Yeah. But often the material itself is not very cognitive it is emotive, it is sensation-based, it's feelings, it's this kind of murky underpinning of sensation. And if I ask somebody, what do you think about this thing? That's your conscious mind. That's pure conscious mind. What do you think about this thing? Pure consciousness. But if I ask you, how do you feel about it? Oh, yeah. That's going to get you more into that murky underbelly that we were talking about. That's going to get you a lot closer to the unconscious mind. And so I think that one of the ways in here is somatic practice of different kinds. Like a lot of the times we have a feeling in the body that doesn't make a lot of sense given what we think about a situation. And people often refer to this as their intuition. They have a body-based sensation and they go, oh, that's my gut feeling about something. Well, what is a gut feeling? a lot of the time it's essentially a kind of bias coming in or it's a schema about the situation that you're in or it's a past experience that's raising its head in the present that's accessing you a different way than from your thinking mind. And that can be really powerful to pay attention to those body-based urges and images and feelings that come up. What's your body telling you? Yeah, yeah, because that can really suggest to somebody, huh, maybe there's some content here. And that can be a way that the unconscious can sort of express itself to us.
1: That's beautiful, Forrest. And then you have people like Peter Levine, who are genius at detecting very subtle shifts of posture and then playing with that, like what's your body saying? Building on what you've said, maybe I'll just name a few other little probes that, again, people might be familiar with. Okay, great. One is sentence completions. This Mm. is great. Where you do a sentence stem and then you just say whatever comes into your mind one thing I want from you is, one thing I want from you is, one thing I want from you is, or I'm afraid of something, I'm afraid of something, or if I could only have something, and you can play around with the stems, but if you start making yourself just generate, first thing, first thing, no censoring, no censoring, that's a very interesting way, you can do it in writing, or you can do it in speaking, One, two what's called automatic writing. I don't know if you've ever done this. This is a technique where you just sort of let your hand write and you're relaxing, top-down, typically verbal, rational control, and all kinds of stuff starts bubbling out, especially if you get kind of used to it and you get comfortable. You get comfortable Mm. with that. Another one, sand tray or other forms like that, Mm. Uh, and I've done that with children. People sometimes do it in more developed ways where you have a tray of sand and you have many, many figures in your office and then the child or the client just reaches and plays with different figures, you know, monsters, soldiers, rabbits, (laughs) trees, stuff like that. And they create a kind of a diorama. So then you're looking at it and obviously you have to take it with a grain of sand, grain of salt, but what do you see? And you take it at face yeah. value and you, you see, oh, isn't that interesting that in this diorama, there's a little kid, there are three kids, there's a little kid and there are two bigger kids and there are these other sort of parent figures. And the two kids are really close to the parent figures, but the other kid, the little kid is always far away. And your client happens to be the little kid. Mm-hmm. Hmm
0: you might start to speculate
1: <laughs> about what it's like to be that kid.
0: Yeah, yeah. Right, well, right. can I can I stop you here, Dad, yep. and ask you a question about that? Because as we start to access this material, yeah, almost always an emotional experience accompanies that. Yeah. So in that final example that you gave, you've got the little kid, they've drawn up the sandbox, and they've got themselves positioned at some distance from their peers.
1: Or their mommy and their daddy and their big brother and big sister.
0: Great. The family's over here. I'm over there. Whatever it is for them. Yeah.
1: I'm left out. They don't want me. And they might leave me behind. So I have to yell and shout and have tantrums to make them notice me, which is what's brought you into my office.
0: And so there we go. We have the whole we have the whole therapy right there, right? We have, all right, we have a desire. That desire is repressed in some way or is unexpressed maybe because a, a little kid doesn't have the yeah. the technology to express that kind of a nuanced desire to their parents. And so something else is emerging based off of that unconscious desire that is becoming problematic. And now that yeah. person has entered treatment in order to deal with the symptom of the unconscious material. And as I say all of this, I think of the kin, I think, wow, that feels really sad. Yeah. Like that's a very sad feeling, right? Yeah. Uh, the other big one for most people when they start dealing with unconscious material is shame mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of these urges that are repressed are socially inappropriate. And again, there's a lot of stuff with Freud that I'm not in love with, but one of his big insights was our desire to repress inappropriate material or that which is deemed um, mm-hmm. too too savage by mm-hmm. our, our civilized white western society so there's a lot of shame for people dad and i'm sure that you've had situations where you're in in a session with somebody and they bring in something and it just comes up and it's accompanied by a lot of shame how do you start helping people to triage themselves in and out of that material as it begins to emerge for them because if it just washes over them they're going to be like totally blown out of their window of tolerance and so i'm wondering like as a clinician. How did you help people manage those emotions when they first started to come up?
1: That's a really big topic, and mm-hmm. it's a deep one for us. Um, Might be another you, episode, but yeah, you Yeah, know, I'll give you an
0: example. So, highlights, yeah.
1: And I'm disguising things somewhat. So, okay, so a situation in which there was a chaotic, disorganized single mother with three young children, sometimes literally living on the street or out of her car, and my client, was uh, one of the three, I, I think was the oldest. Uh, yeah, was the oldest of three, it was a son. And I was working with him in his in his 40s. So this is now 30, mm, 40 mm-hmm. years later. And it became clear from just understanding the story a little bit that he felt ashamed that as an eight-year-old, but he was the I'm gonna use certain kind of languaging here. He was like the man of the family
0: Mm, as mm, an
1: eight-year-old. Because his mom, who actually got organized, and I think there was maybe some drug and alcohol stuff early on, but she definitely grew and progressed later. But as a kid, he felt like it was his fault that he couldn't protect his younger brother and sister from their circumstances. And he felt deeply ashamed Mm. No shame. Not feelings of inadequacy, that's a separate kind of thing, shame, like moral fault, weight of shame. And I could tell that that was in the mix and the crucible again, it was explosive. Hmm. It was explosive uh, material and we really needed to work on it. So I deliberately did a lot of stuff that was more current or almost you could say heady rather than burrowing into that deep material because we weren't ready for that yet. And so we did a fair amount about building up our alliance and, you know, our connection and his own sense of worth, his own sense of worth. So that with that strength, which you have wisely highlighted, we could then increasingly start getting at what happened. And he had the capacity increasingly to both feel that sweet young warrior, good warrior kind of boy who couldn't rescue his family, Mm -hmm. while also stepping far enough back to realize that of course he couldn't. It was not that boy's fault that there were problems. Of course he couldn't. And there was nothing to be ashamed of, right? Mm -hmm. But it was based on having the, the strengths developed over time to be able to do that and then process around that and not need to anesthetize himself against that terrible, shame is terrible, Mm. Of all the so-called negative emotions, it's it's the hardest to bear, really. Mm. People can bear fear unless, it you know, panic is horrible, but fear, anger, and sadness, but shame, oh boy, really.
0: Was it something where you were able to do work inside of the room and then put a lid on it? in some kind of way so that they could walk out and yeah. be functional until they came into the room again and you were able to go back into the material?
1: Yeah, now we're in the kind of the little bit the, the minutiae, the craft. It's like a science and it's mainly a craft actually.
0: But I also think that it's craft that might be helpful for people in terms of triaging themselves into yeah. and out of these feelings as you begin to go through a process. Like let's say that to use myself as a, as an example here just really quickly, Let's say that I go through a process where I start to come to terms with the fact that I am just a sensitive person, period, full stop, sensitive boyo. that's the way that I am. Okay. And that's in a context of a broader culture that is not necessarily super receptive around sensitive guys and so on and so on. Okay. So when that first comes up for me, what happens? Well, denial happens. I, You know, that was the first 25 or so years of my life. And then, okay, you go through a process of interacting with the material. And for me, I really had to triage myself into and out of it. I couldn't just like live there all the time because for starters, I would just get emotionally exhausted. But then also you get down on yourself and just all this other stuff starts to happen. So it was really helpful for me to be able to sometimes contact that material and sometimes not and kind of work in and out of it in waves. And I would imagine that's also part of what you did inside of the office with people, particularly when they're dealing with stuff like the story you're describing, which is much more intense in terms of its emotional valence, and the age of it, and just the whole thing.
1: Yeah, and you know my model of the HEAL process, have, enrich, absorb, and link. And right here is linking. So here, mm-hmm. here's my client, and I have and had genuine, tremendous respect for him. And he could feel that, he knew that, he knew that. And the fact that I was a doctor, That added to the impact of of my respect for him. So he's sitting in the context of my respect for him and my seeing that there was nothing to be ashamed of in that young eight-year-old's life while feeling the shame. Mm -hmm. So there's the linking right there, right there. He's feeling the shame. He's also experiencing my unconditional positive regard, as Carl Rogers would put it. He's having a corrective emotional experience, as Mm -hmm. the psychodynamicist Mm -hmm. might put it. And all that's happening in real time. And then there's the management of that. Well, I'm aware of the clock ticking and I'm thinking 19 yeah. minutes to go. <laughs> Fourteen. <laughs> New person in 20 minutes. Yeah. You know, I might get three minutes to, you know, get a drink of water. You gotta put
0: this guy back together before he leaves the office. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I you know, I don't wanna uh, Send them out the door
1: <laughs> bleeding from all orifices. So you know there's sure. there's that. You're thinking about that as well in the reality of it all. Yeah, yeah. And then there's some repetition. And then there's a, what helps too is a this could be useful for people, actually, is to shift to a to a voice, if you will, a perspective that's your own, but it's about you. And a shift from me naming the reality that of course that eight-year-old could never get their mother out of poverty, right? That eight-year-old could not stop certain things happening to his six-year-old and four-year-old brother and sister. I'm saying those things. But then the powerful shift is when he starts to say those things. He can say those things. And so he's the one who's carrying you know, the talking stick of wisdom, as it were. He is yeah. the microphone. Then there's, mm-hmm. that's the really, really, really important shift.
0: Yeah, two things that I would just highlight in there that stand out to me as really key parts. The last thing you said sounds a little bit like a version of almost teach what you need to learn. Hmm. Become the person who's doing the talking, who's doing the saying, doing the reinforcing. That can be really powerful. You're saying it to yourself. You're yeah. saying it to yourself. Yeah. You,
1: you know, so if you just play with it on your own, you three, three perspectives. One, uh, there's the third party who's telling you then there's you telling it to you. Then there's the beleaguered inner being, like the mm. eight year old child, who mm. is receiving it into oneself.
0: Yeah. And then so the second thing that stands out from all of that is just the relationality of it.
1: Yeah. And the fearlessness of it.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. The bravery of it, but kind of technically, in terms of what might be helping a person that there's somebody else that they're in a dialogue with, even if that somebody else is just a part of themselves, you know? But I think that a huge aid to the whole thing is not just working with a clinician, it's having somebody outside of the self who is present in some kind of a positive and reinforcing way, who is holding space or being supportive or acknowledging that what you went through really was hard and really was painful. That seems like a just enormously positive part of the whole thing.
1: Yeah, often a a real flesh and blood, other person, one way or another. I'm thinking of the saying from AA, the mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Never go in alone. (laughs) And I I think in a literary way, the angel Virgil, supposedly, was Dante's guide through the inferno, okay? You wanna have a guide with you when you're going after the hard stuff. And it could be an inner guide, though. You know, your innermost wisdom, your, your guides, your, your totems. Think about traditional First Nations culture sometimes, your spirit guides, you know, who's with you. Your ancestral wisdom is with you. If it's okay, maybe for us, and I know we're going to wrap up here, and I have no idea how you're going to edit this sprawling conversation, and I hope you do. <laughs> I warned you, it was going to be both rigid and unruly, and it's been mainly unruly. I want to put a plea in here for including what's left out. And Zen saying, nothing left out, and yet we're always leaving things out, so don't leave out that you leave stuff out. Hmm. So in our standard culture, including your and my discourse style, highly verbal, highly logical, rational, procedural, it's about control, top-down control, uh, kind of an engineering model of the mind, you know, study it, physics, and then do engineering on it, fix it. And, okay. Lots, lots of benefit to that stuff. And what does that leave out? Mystery. What is beyond our control? What is nonverbal? Undreamt of in our philosophies, Horatio. What's left out? And how can we start to invite and welcome and encourage what's left out? And mm-hmm. I, I want to kind of put a plea for that. And there are different ways into it. One way is just to play around with archetypal figures you know, that you often find like in the hero's journey or heroine's mm-hmm. journey. you know, That there's a kind of a model of different characters that might be meaningful to you. But just to consider different parts of yourself or different aspects of yourself or kind of open up to stuff that maybe you've pushed away. Maybe you can afford to sit down by the campfire of your own consciousness and invite some of the characters in the shadows, in the trees to come sit with you.
0: Well, I think that's as good a spot as we're going to find to close this episode because I think it's one of those things where if we just had infinite time and we kept the camera rolling, we would just kind of keep talking about this because there's so much to keep talk going. about. We would just we just keep on going. We'd end up talking about corrective emotional experiences and how therapy works and, you know, the whole thing. And, and it would just turn into like every other episode of the podcast because <laughs> most of them in some way can find their way back to the unconscious mind. So I had a great time talking with Rick today about the sprawling and expansive topic of what the unconscious mind is, how we can maybe access it, and what we can do about it once we get there. We began today's conversation by talking about what the unconscious mind is. And to understand the unconscious, we need to get a bit of a sense of what the mind is at all, and particularly how the mind is organized. So Freud had a model of the mind where he organized it into three layers, the conscious at the top, the pre-conscious kind of in the middle, and then the unconscious down in the basement. And the conscious mind is the part of our mind that we are aware of, that we can interact with at will. The preconscious is the part of the mind that is just out of sight, like an iceberg, it's the bit that's below the water, but we can still see it. It's there if we want to access it deliberately. This could be information like what you ate a couple of months ago. It's not bopping around your awareness right now, but if you needed to, you could call it up. And then the third layer is the unconscious, and that's all the material that is hidden from our awareness. And there's a useful distinction here between two different kinds of unconscious processes. The first one are processes like your heart beating, that you're not aware of normally but your body's just doing it you're unconscious of that activity and then there's maybe truly unconscious material it's uh to use my what you had for breakfast example this is what you had for breakfast on june 13th of 2007. you've just forgotten it it's not conscious anymore you don't have access to that information and then there is a final third category and this is what we really focused on today And that's all of the material that for some reason you could have access to, but your mind has pushed it down. And this includes psychological material, emotional material, urges of different kinds that near conception they're kind of inappropriate and you don't really know what to do with them, so you push them down inside of you. And a lot of this material relates to the psychoanalytic work done by Freud and Jung, and therefore it's situated in its context, which is Victorian Europe, basically. We're talking early 1900s to like early mid-1900s world wars, colonialism, and this underlying conflict that runs through a lot of that thinking between the righteous, Christian, civilized North and West— and the uncivilized barbarian south and east. And in much the same way, Freud kind of took that conflict and applied it to the nature of the mind, saying we have all of these uncivilized urges and we need to do something to regulate them. So what do we do? Well, we push them down inside of us. And then these uh, urges boil away and they develop a kind of psychic energy over time. And the more we push them down, The more they try to come on out of us. And a lot of psychoanalytic therapy is focused on helping people learn how to access that material in safe ways, to pop the cork just a little bit in an environment where it's appropriate to do so, and then learn how to regulate those impulses and urges and express them out in various ways. And at this point, we talked about if this material is outside of our awareness, and we're not really totally sure what's down there why should we care about it and the answer is that it often exerts a hidden influence over our behavior again you can think about things like unconscious bias or repressed material that can bubble out of us at uncertain times and in uncertain ways maybe ways that we would like to regulate a little bit better or maybe these are triggers or fears or things that just emerge inside of us as feelings in a moment that we don't totally understand why we feel the way that we do but we know that we're feeling what we're feeling And understandably, particularly if these things are starting to become painful or problematic for a person, they might want to go through a process of accessing and unearthing that material. So how do we access a part of our mind that is not accessible? Well, it's kind of hard. And so we talked for a fair amount of the conversation about various ways that somebody might plausibly be able to get in touch with their unconscious. And there are some classic techniques that are used that these days are viewed in general as being a little fringe or a little unscientific. But that doesn't mean that a person can't get some value out of them individually. And this could include things like free association, which might include Freudian slips. And then there are Rorschach tests. We talked about ink block testing a little bit during the episode. And dream analysis. That was another thing that Rick named. Then in addition to that, there were two things that I highlighted and a third one that I'm going to add during this recap as a kind of bonus. And the first is mindfulness practice. When we quiet the mind, things often bubble up into it to fill the space. And some people actually have noisy minds as almost a defense against other material. What would they be thinking about if their mind weren't chattering away at them? And often a quiet mind is anxiety-provoking for people who have an orientation toward anxiety, and also maybe for people who have some material that they haven't fully processed yet. Then second, various kinds of body-based or somatic practices. The thinking mind is very conscious, so the more that we can do to move away from the top-down, rational, very super ego-driven thinking mind and wander toward the province of the id, the closer we're gonna get to those unconscious parts of us. And then finally, I would say that if we wanna simplify all of this complex, fuzzy material about the unconscious to a really basic idea, we're talking about developing self-awareness here. So anything that you can do to resource yourself more and develop more awareness of your interior is going to be a useful practice. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while and haven't done so yet, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it wherever you're listening to it now on. And if you'd rather watch video than listen to the podcast, you can find me on YouTube. I'll include a link to that in the description of the podcast episode as well. And hey, if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a few dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll get a whole bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon.